You're listening to Let's Talk Creation, the science podcast that's just for you with Paul Gardner and Todd Wood. Well, welcome back uh, to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I'm Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And we're here to talk about origins, creation, Genesis, the Bible, all sorts of things. Um, and hey, it's spring finally. I've noticed uh, as I've been uh, driving around here in town, uh, little green buds are just starting to come out on the trees. Uh, by the time people hear this episode, here in Tennessee, spring will be over. We have a very short spring, usually, um, <laughs> and a very long summer. <laughs> yeah. Um, the garden's looking great because, you know, there's blossom on the trees and the tulips and the daffodils are appearing. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and it, it kind of lifts the spirits. It does. It, when, it does. When we start to even yeah. even in lockdown or or some form of lockdown or yeah. some form of social distancing it's it's a little nicer to have a little bit of life outside rather than just gray skies and rain all the time yeah well paul today yeah. i thought we would discuss a topic that is uh, a great favorite of many people at least lots of creationists like to talk about it. I think I think this is a subject that makes sort of the average churchgoer's eyes glaze over and they just they lose interest and start thinking about what they're going to stream on their TV shortly um, once the conversation is over. Uh, it's the geologic column. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was told, by our produ production team that we want to make this very um, accessible, kind of like the geologic column for dummies. So, of course, I have been cast as the dummy. So, <laughs> and I don't know if that's typecasting or what. Maybe I'll be a, you know, a really good dummy. Um, but I, 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 I'm going to try to try to make this accessible to folks by making it accessible to me. And I'm not a geologist, so I have a lot of questions about this thing. So I guess to start, why don't we just define it, right? What in the world yeah. is this geologic column? Okay, well, good place to start. So Anybody who has ever learned anything about geology, anybody who's ever picked up a geology book, I think is going to have come across this thing called the geological column. So the geological column is basically a graphic representation of the layers of rock in, in the crust of the earth. And you can think of it as a kind of idealized composite column of rock layers that's constructed from information from lots of local areas around the world. Uh, and it's in the form of a column where the oldest rocks are at the bottom and the youngest rocks at the top. That's just standard geological convention. And uh, the column is then uh, divided up. It has some major divisions, things like Precambrian, Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic. And then each of those uh, major divisions is further subdivided into various geological systems uh, with names like Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, Devonian, and so on. And I think um, 
it's easy for people to get sort of bogged down in all of this unfamiliar terminology. But I think people can just think of the geological column in simple terms as a kind of generalized representation of the Earth's rock layers with the oldest at the bottom, youngest at the top, and with these various subdivisions that are given all of these strange names. Okay, so you, you've used words like generalized and ideal or idealized. If I go out my back door here in Tennessee on the edge of the Cumberland Plateau and I drill down 5,000 feet and take a core out of that, right? Yeah. Am I going to find the geologic column? Is that the geologic column? If you were to drill down into the rocks of the, the crust, you know, there in Tennessee, you would see part of the geological column, but not the whole thing. Uh, in any one location on the surface of the earth, uh, we don't see the whole column, you know, in, in one place. And in fact, this is often an objection that is raised against the concept of the geological column by creationists perhaps who are suspicious about it. They say, look, it's entirely hypothetical. It doesn't really exist in reality. You only find it in the textbooks. But I think that's a misunderstanding because we wouldn't really expect to find the whole geological column in one place because the whole point about the geological column is that it is a composite representation of the rocks of the Earth's crust. In any one location on the surface of the Earth, um, sediments are not being deposited continuously because the sediments that are being deposited in one place are obviously being sourced somewhere else by erosion. And so when erosion is happening, there's a time gap, right? You don't, you're not having sediments deposited. But we can piece together the geological column as this composite by filling in the missing interval in one local column by the rocks which are being deposited somewhere else during that time interval. So, so this, this is the concept of the column. It's, it's a composite from many local geological columns in many places around the world. So I guess that, that makes sense. That So I live here where I live. Uh, there's a, there's a, to the west of me, there's a plateau. Uh, basically, the, the lowlands around here, that's ridge and valley, and then there's mountains, there's pretty substantial mountains uh, to the east of my house. So it would make sense to me then that that must involve a lot of stuff. I, I don't know how to describe it geologically, but, you know, you, you got to build your mountains up, right? And that's going to erode stuff. So I suppose it would make sense then that layers would be eroded and reworked. Yeah. Yeah. So, having, having said that, yeah. I mean, there are some places in the world where you can get a pretty good cross-section of the geological... I was going to ask it's, that, yeah. yeah. There must be some place where there's a lot of it, right? Maybe not all of it, yeah. but a big chunk of it. Sure, and it kind of depends what, what you mean by a, a local geological column, right? So, so take the Colorado Plateau, for example, um, which is this high uplifted plateau. You know, it covers parts of Arizona and Colorado and Utah. Okay. 
And dug into or carved into that high uplifted plateau, we have a number of deep canyons. The most famous, of course, being the Grand Canyon. And if you go and look at the rock sequence in the Grand Canyon, we have um, some crystalline uh, basement rocks, and then uh, they're of Precambrian age, and then we have uh, some uh, tilted Precambrian sedimentary rocks on top of those, and then on top of those we have flat-lying uh, sedimentary rock layers of Paleozoic age. So we have uh, a pretty good cross-section of the parts of the Precambrian up to the end of the Paleozoic. I think the Ordovician and Silurian are missing. But then if you go um, further north from Grand Canyon, just a few miles further north to the Vermilion Cliffs, in the Vermilion Cliffs, there are the Mesozoic rock layers that sit on top of the Paleozoic rock layers that you can see exposed in Grand Canyon. And then if you go a bit further north still, just a few miles further north, uh, say to Bryce Canyon, you can see then the uppermost parts of the Mesozoic and the lowermost parts of the Cenozoic. So within a relatively short distance, you can actually uh, see a pretty good cross-section of a substantial portion of the geological column. Okay, so if by some chance we got permission and we could drill down through the crust there in Bryce Canyon, would we have most of the column underfoot there? Yes, I, th I think you would. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with whether they've You're done. Not sure, uh, but it's probable but it, but it but it but it's probable it, it, it would make sense that yes you would yeah okay all right so there are places where most of the column or most of yeah. these layers and and when we say column again we're talking about a certain order of layers like a stack of pancakes yeah. That would be an American thing. I don't know what you guys would yeah. have over there. In America, we have, we have things called pancakes, <laughs> and they're delicious. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they come in stacks. Uh, yeah. yeah. What would be a British analogy? Do you have anything like that? Yeah, like a layer cake. Like a layer cake. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. So, yeah. yeah. Layer we, we sometimes refer to it as layer cake stratigraphy. Okay. So, the you know, the sequence of rock layers like the layers like you find layer in a cake. cake. Yeah, a piece of sponge and then some cream and then some more sponge and then the icing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Okay, good. Um, so, all right. So that's sort of the theoretical reality of what we think about as the column today. How, how did this get put together? Who came up with this stuff? I know, mm. you know, I think about physics, I immediately think about Newton and his massive breakthroughs. I think biology and I think Darwin and his origin of species. Uh, and I think geology and I think, I'm not sure. Who, 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 okay. who's, who's the Darwin or Newton of geology? Who, who is that guy? Is okay. there one? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the story of the geological column actually involves a lot of different geologists. Okay. And I, I suppose to answer your question, how was the column put together? There, there's a there's a short answer and a longer answer. Okay. Um. And and perhaps we should 
to tackle both. So, well, why don't you start with a short one? Because I think that's yeah. going to open a can of worms, and then yeah. we'll, we'll try to follow all the threads there and see if we can make sense of it. Sure. So the short answer is that the basic details of the geological column were put together in the 18th and particularly the early 19th century by uh, a number of geologists who basically recognised that there were successions of distinctive rock layers that appeared to occur in a consistent order wherever they were found. (laughs) Okay, succession of distinctive rock layers. You're saying that... What would that look like to me? I'm going out, I see what, like a layer of sandstone and a layer of limestone or something like that. And it's always in the same order with what, the same fossils in it, something like that? Yes. Yes. Superimposed on this sequence of rock layers, there were also successions of fossils. Okay. And they also appeared... In a, to, to occur in a predictable sequence. Ah, so it didn't have so to you have ha- fossils. It didn't have to have fossils. You you can you can piece together the geological sequence without the fossils. Okay. You know, in in many cases, but fossils also seem to show this same kind of predictable sequence and order. And it was by putting all of this information together that, in effect, we get the basics of the the geological column. So the geological column was simply an attempt by these early field geologists to summarize and to synthesize the patterns that they were observing in the rocks and in the fossils that those rocks contain. So did this happen did this happen while people were still something like flood geologists or were these people already you know, thinking the earth was millions of years old. What's going on there? Do they, do they understand? Yeah. I guess the question is, do they understand? Do they have a model of where these layers are coming from? Or are they simply describing what they observe? I guess that's my question. Well, the, the geologists who put the column together were mostly not evolutionists. Okay. They, In fact, they were anti-evolutionists very, very often. All right. Then. Um, um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and th- uh, you've got to remember, of course, this was, this was kind of before the time of Darwin. Some yes. of these people were sort of overlapped with with Darwin, but the column itself was being put together mostly before 1859. And so, these people were not evolutionists, but they they did believe in an old Earth. You know, they they were they were not flood geologists. They they were people who sort of broadly accepted. Um, that the earth was very old, that maybe creation had happened, you know, over long eras of time. You also have to remember, of course, that this was before the time that radioactivity was discovered. You know, there was no radi- radiometric dating, so we didn't have absolute ages to, that we could assign to these rocks. Um, so they weren't putting the column together as an argument to support evolution. They weren't putting the column together because they were relying on radiometric dating on the absolute dates, but they were trying to sort of basically synthesize these patterns that they were observing, that there was a sequence in terms of the rocks and the fossils they contained. So if there were people, so this is before evolution, these guys are generally old earth people. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Do they, I guess the next question, do they, do they all sort of agree on what causes the layers themselves or perhaps the different layers? 
Uh, do they all, for example, think that, you know, limestone is the bottom of an ocean over a very fast period of time, dropping little microscopic bodies of microorganisms? Or do they have other ideas? Is there is there agreement at least that much? Do you know? Uh in the very earliest days of geology, there was not always agreement about those things. Um, but by the time that you're, you're getting to the first half of the 19th century when the column is being put together, I would think there is broad agreement on, on those kinds of questions. There, people, I mean, what, what might... So, sorry, go on. Yeah, people. so people are starting to come <clears throat> to some consensus about the layer formation. Yes. Okay. Yes, they are. So m- maybe we could sort of start to get into this slightly longer answer, which I think helps to set some of the historical context and actually sort of illustrate how these guys were working to put the column together. Sure. So to tell that story, we kind of have to go back to um, the period before 1800. And at that time, there was sort of a growing interest in uh, searching for coal and metals and other geological materials of economic importance. Ah. So their interest in geology has been driven by these very practical kind of interests. Right. And what they were doing was they were proposing various different schemes for classifying the Earth's rock layers. And there, there are different schemes that are sort of floating around. But... Broadly speaking, people seem to recognize that there were at least three major divisions of rocks that they called primary, secondary, and tertiary. Um, And the primary rocks were basically the oldest rocks. So they were um, hard, crystalline rocks, things like granites and gneisses. They mostly didn't have have any fossils in them. And then there were younger rocks called secondary rocks that were uh, included groups of sedimentary rock layers that were often abundantly fossiliferous, you know, had lots of fossils, uh, limestone, shales, clays, and so on. Uh, and then there were the tertiary rocks, which are, again, you know, you, you have these groups of sedimentary rocks that appeared to be younger, sometimes apparently derived by the erosion of the secondary rocks and also containing fossils. So we had this sort of broad division, primary, secondary, tertiary rocks, older to younger. Now on onto this kind of scene comes uh, William Smith. And William Smith is, uh, again, someone with very practical interests in geology. He's uh, an engineer. He's a canal engineer and a land surveyor in uh, southern England. And he's he's constructing... Uh, canals in southern England in uh, 1798 and he begins to recognize that there are these distinctive um, rock units with distinctive assemblages of fossils and they appear in a consistent order wherever he finds them as he's excavating his canals and he realizes that you can use the this uh these successions of rocks and fossils in order to match up rocks in different areas. And so that's what he does. And in fact, William Smith is the first person to construct a geological map of a whole region. So in 1815, he publishes his map 
his geological map that covers England, Wales, and a bit of Scotland. Independently of William Smith, over on the European continent, you've got other people who are doing kind of similar work. Um, one of the most famous was Georges Cuvier. Now, Cuvier, as I'm sure you're aware, he was um, he was a French naturalist, uh, zoologist, vertebrate paleontologist, and he was a very significant figure in the natural sciences in the first half of the 19th century. And uh, he, along with an associate, Alexandre Broniar, uh, were studying the rocks and fossils of the Paris Basin. And they were basically finding the same thing that William Smith was finding, that there were successions of fossil assemblages that you could use to match rocks up. You could, you could, you could correlate rocks over broad areas. Um, now, that's kind of the, that sets the scene. In the, what happens in the next generation is that you get geologists who are working on um, particular packages of rock, particular sequences of rock that begin to put together the geological column in the form that we kind of understand it today. And uh, this was between about 1820, 1850. And just to give you a kind of sense of the kind of work that these, these guys were doing, let me mention three of them who were quite significant. Adam Sedgwick, Roderick Murchison, and Charles Lapworth. <clears throat> now, Sedgwick was uh, the professor of geology at Cambridge. And, you know, again, very um, significant figure in the natural sciences at that time. In fact, he was the, the man who taught Charles Darwin his geological fieldcraft, although Sedgwick did not share Darwin's evolutionary views. Uh, Darwin, um, uh, Sedgwick described Darwin's um, theory, I think, as a dish of rank materialism. <laughs> So, you know, he, he was not a fan of Darwin's evolutionary ideas. but Very good but, way with words there, I think, yeah. <laughs> yes, he didn't, he didn't mince his words. Um, so Sedgwick, um, in 1831, he spends a couple of field seasons in North Wales where he's studying a sequence of very highly folded and faulted rocks. And what he's trying to do is basically work out the, the sequence of the rock layers and the major boundaries and subdivisions. And that becomes the basis of what he calls the Cambrian system. Okay, so he names this system of rocks the Cambrian system. And in fact, the, the name Cambrian comes from the ancient name for Wales, Cambria. So it was just named after the region where it was first described and defined. Now, meanwhile, Sir Roderick Murchison, who was another uh, well-known geologist of the time. He's studying um, a similar rock sequence in South Wales, but where um, Sedgwick is kind of working from the bottom up, Murchison is working from the top down. <clears throat> and he's doing the same thing as Sedgwick, basically, he's sort of working out the sequence and the major subdivisions. And he defines this package of rock as the Silurian system. So he gives it that name. 1839, he publishes a monograph called The Silurian System. Now, what happened after this is a kind of disagreement arose. There was a dispute between followers of Sedgwick and followers of Murchison 
over some other rock layers in North Wales. And the dispute was basically this. Should, should they be included in Sedgwick's Cambrian system or should they be included in Murchison's Silurian system? Right, so there's this debate, you know, where, where, where do they actually belong? And uh, in 1879, Charles Lapworth, another geologist, is looking at these rocks and he realizes that the fossils in these disputed rock layers are actually different from the fossils in the in Sedgwick's Cambrian rocks, and they're also different from the fossils in Murchison's Silurian rocks. And so he says, no, the, these rocks actually belong to a new system all of their own, and he calls it the Ordovician system. Uh, and uh, that was in 1879, although I think the Ordovician wasn't formally recognised until about 1960. You know, Lapworth was basically trying to sort of resolve this dispute between the followers of Murchison and Sedgwick. <clears throat> so this is the kind of sort of detailed field study and the kinds of debates and disagreements that there are that lead eventually to the formulation of this geological column with all of these defined um, systems of rock in this sort of layer cake or this, this stack of pancakes. And that's put together mostly between, as I say, between 1820 and 1850. And the names of, you know, these, these sort of names that we all struggle to, to memorize, you know, Cambrian, Ordovician, Silurian, and so on, they mostly come from, um, well, they have a number of sources. Some of them come from the region where those rocks were first described and defined, like the Cambrian. Uh, some of them come from the names of tribes, ancient tribes that lived in those areas, like the Ordovician and the Silurian. Uh, some of the names come from uh, particular rock types that are characteristic of those particular geological systems. So the Carboniferous, for example, uh, comes from the Latin carbo, meaning coal, because coal was particularly well developed in, in the Carboniferous system. Or the um, the Cretaceous is named from the Latin creta chalk because it's in the Cretaceous that we find this enormous development of chalk chalk layers. So, uh, so that's basically you know how this geological column gets gets put together. You've been listening to Todd and Paul Talk Creation. If you'd like more information about any of the subjects discussed in the show, please visit us at coresci.org podcast. That's coresci.org podcast. Are you confused about creation and evolution? Are you intimidated by people who tell you that only morons believe in creationism and that evolution is a proven fact? What if these challenges aren't merely problems to be solved, but an opportunity or an invitation to a lifetime of discipleship seeking God. This is the subject of The Quest, Exploring Creation's Hardest Problems, a book written by me, Todd Wood, and it presents a unique perspective on creation and evolution that encourages faith, commitment, and curiosity in the face of uncertainty. Science and biblical creation walk hand in hand as we explore God's creation. God calls us to experience the joy of questions and the beauty of his handiwork on the quest. It's available today at coresci.org quest. 
Okay, so let me see if I can... That's a lot of detail. I mean, that is a lot of... I can see how it does not become one guy's project, right? Newton can sit down and work out his formulas and work out the math. Darwin can take his observations, because Darwin was a synthesizer. He was using all these other people's observations and some of his own to make his argument for evolution. But the geology side takes a lot of basically boots on the ground in lots of different places. Exactly. Okay. So next question, you mentioned, you mentioned Cuvier working in Paris around Paris. And you mentioned that, uh, you mentioned a bunch of British geologists. Um, so how do you know that the rock layers and the column that you put together in Britain is the same one that's happening over in France? Because it makes, I mean, from a sort of a dumb biologist perspective, uh, it makes sense that different places would have different things, right? Because... When I go to different places, there are different organisms, different plants and different animals and so forth. And so why would I expect to get a column in France that's essentially the same as the column in England or Wales or Scotland or whatever? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a very good question because I, I, I think um, that's a reasonable question to ask. Why, why would you expect the column that you describe in, in Britain bears any relationship to the column on mainland Europe or in the United States or in Africa or Australia or wherever. Yeah, I mean, we've had Brexit now, so there should be no relationship between (laughs) UK and and Europe. (laughs) So, so that's, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I don't think there is a, you know, a, a good reason to expect that they should, they should basically give the, you should see the same patterns. But one of the most remarkable things about the geological column is that actually the geological column does work in those disparate parts of the world. So although much of it was defined in Britain, not all of it, because, you know, bits of it were defined elsewhere. So the the Permian is named after the Perm province in Russia, and the Triassic is named after um, a a set of rocks in, in Germany. So not all of it was put together in Britain, but much of it was. Um, but the remarkable thing is that when we do go to other parts of the world, we find that actually the column works really well and it kind of matches the patterns that we see there as well. So, for example, if you were to sort of give a very broad sort of overview of the column uh, here in Britain, you would say something like this. So we, we have basically a crystalline basement, hard crystalline rocks, granites, gneisses that form the kind of bedrock of the you know, the, the, the country. And then we have um, a series of sediments on top of that. So we have uh, marine Paleozoic sediments with fossils of trilobites and brachiopods. And then um, towards the top of the Paleozoic, we have uh, Carboniferous layers, which have coal, uh, coal beds in them. And then they're followed by sort of red beds, um, you know, red sandstones and, and mudstones. 
And then we get into a whole variety of terrestrial and marine sediments that have dinosaur fossils in them. Uh, and at the top of those layers, we find the chalk. And then we get into the tertiary uh, layers, and they contain fossils of mammals and birds. And eventually you get up into the top of that series of layers, and we get the Ice Age deposits. So that's a kind of summary of what we, what we see in the geology of Britain. Now, the interesting thing is when we actually look in other parts of the world, we find that that sequence of layers is what we find elsewhere. So think about the Grand Canyon again. You know, we've already talked about the Colorado Plateau. The Grand Canyon has the crystalline basement rocks, and then it has, you know, marine um, Paleozoic layers uh, on top with trilobites and brachiopods and things. Uh, and also in the United States, we have Carboniferous deposits. We've got the coal beds, you know, in, in the coal basins of Pennsylvania and Illinois and so on. Uh, and you've got the red beds, you've got the Permian and Triassic red beds, and we've got the Mesozoic layers with the dinosaurs. And, uh, there's even chalk, you know, we have, we have the chalk in the Cretaceous, you know, you've got that, the, the Austin chalk in Texas, for example. Uh, and then you go up into the tertiary and you've got the tertiary beds and you've got the ice age deposits on top of that. So, you know, the geological column, although it was basically defined here in Europe, works pretty well when you go and apply it to the geological sequence in North America. So in other words, what we're looking at is something that appears to be a kind of global pattern, global signature. I was just going to say that. I mean, it seems <laughs> it's... I can see why people would be skeptical of this because it seems incredible. It seems impossible unless there is literally, I mean, you're talking about a, a, a layer, a layer sequence that can be defined based on essentially the composition of the layers as a first approximation of, of what things are. You're talking about red sandstones that occur in particular layers, chalk deposits that occur in particular layers, um, carbon, carboniferous stuff that occurs in a particular layer, the, the coal deposits, the, the, those particular coal deposits. Um, it would seem like you would need a global explanation to account for a global sequencing. Am I wrong? Uh, it seems like that's right. Well, I mean, when, when we see patterns as scientists, they, they cry out for explanation, right? And, and here, here we see a global pattern. Sure. There's lots of local complexity and regional complexity. So, you know, we're, we're not talking about individual um, beds, you know, the same beds necessarily showing up, you know, in Illinois as show up in the coal basins of, of Britain. But there are broad first order patterns which do show up everywhere, these, these sort of big global patterns. And that's crying out for an explanation. And as creationists, I think we are justified in saying, well, we've got an explanation for that because you know, we believe that the Bible teaches that there was a worldwide flood. And a worldwide flood 
would have worldwide geological effects. You you would expect that um, if a worldwide flood occurred, that you would see worldwide patterns in the Earth's rock layers and in the fossil layers. And that is what we see. A first approximation, that is exactly what we see in the record. So, so I, th I think that is... Ex that should... That should hearten us as creationists. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I've, it's always been quite difficult to understand why there is such fierce resistance to the concept of the geological column among at least some sections of creationism. Because to me, it kind of, you know, it, it's like we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we want to deny the global patterns that oh, I yeah. think our model expects to see. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so in in sort of the conventional world where there there there's no global flood, right? Um, let's just pick an example here: uh, the the Permian sandstones. So I'm, I'm suddenly no longer playing the dummy because I know what a Permian sandstone is, at least. Um, but yeah. So there are these sandstones that are pretty much all over the world. They're 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 Permian, uh, which means they are the last layer deposited before you get to the first layers where you find dinosaur fossils. Uh, so and they're sandstones, and so they're everywhere. Which I don't know. How do you get around? I mean, if Everywhere you go and you find Permian rock, they're all sandstone. How do you get around needing a global explanation? How do you how do you explain that if you don't have a flood? What's the explanation? Mm -hmm. Can you give me an example? Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, there is there is obviously more complexity than that. Not all the Permian rocks are, are cross-bedded. All right, you know, sandstone. Fair enough. But, I did not know. But that. nevertheless, <laughs> but but nevertheless, there there is there is a there is a a broad pattern. So, uh, you know, John Whitmore and and others have studied the Coconino sandstone. You know, I was part of that project um, studying the Coconino Permian sandstone in, in Grand Canyon, crops out across much of northern and central Arizona. And there are other similar sandstones across the southwestern United States uh, of, you know, broadly... Um, similar age and that they look very similar. They often look very similar, have similar characteristics, similar sedimentology, uh, similar fossil footprints, uh, you know, similar, similar traits basically. But we find the same kinds of sandstones here in the UK. Uh, John Whitmore came over here. Um, and we looked at the Permian sandstones here in Britain and we kind of went round all of the major sort of Permian sandstone units here. And they look very similar to what we see in the United States, have very similar characteristics. And you can find them in, in you know, other parts of the world as well. So how, how do they explain this from a mainstream perspective? Well, to take the Permian as, as an example, uh, geologists believe that during the um, late Paleozoic, uh, which is when these sandstones were, were deposited, the continents were all united together in a single supercontinent called Pangaea. 
And so they interpret these widespread cross-bedded sandstones as desert sandstones that were being deposited in the very hot and arid interior of this enormous supercontinent that existed at the time. Uh, so, uh, so, so that's that's basically how they would sort of understand the data. That so all the world is a desert. Yes. So basically, the the, the world is pretty much a desert. But, yeah. I. How does that happen? I mean, I know I understand you know the weather. I I don't understand them, but I have a vague education about air movements and patterns and. Most importantly, the water cycle, right? The water cycle where you have evaporation of water from from the oceans and it and it comes up over the land and it falls as rain and runs as rivers back to the ocean. There's a cycle there. So you're telling me that the model for the Permian sandstone is that that is essentially suspended on a massive scale. Well, I mean, the only way we get deserts today is that there are certain certain places where the winds don't blow the water over the land, right? Uh, and so there, are, and and it's diagnostic. You can say there's certain latitudes and certain landforms. There's gonna you're gonna get a desert. Um, so is that what's going on? Is it just that you? I yeah. can't even imagine how that would work. <laughs> well, I mean, it's partly a function of where where they think Pangaea was located. You know. In, okay. Uh, on the Earth's surface at that time, because remember the continents move around, right? Sure, and it's partly yeah. it's partly a function of the fact that, and the, the climate of an enormous single supercontinent is very different from the kind of climate that would uh, that would characterise our modern world with widely um, uh, separated uh, continents, uh, separated by wide oceans. So, so I, th- so I suppose the the thing is that. In order to account for these very these unique kind of rock systems that characterise particular geological systems in the column, you have to invoke yeah. um, conditions in the history of the Earth that are very very unlike anything that we experience today. The same would be true of the chalk. Yeah. You know that, that right. we we do not see today um, coccolith sediments like the chalks. You know, compose these little tests of, you know, microscopic marine organisms. Right. We do not see chalk being deposited on the uh, scale that we see in the Cretaceous, either the thickness of the sediments or the wide distribution of those sediments. And remember, this is on the continents as well, because the, these coccolith sediments are basically on what today are high-standing continents. So again, you have to invoke sort of unique circumstances. So the Cretaceous is thought to have been a time when uh, seafloor spreading rates were very high, and that me- meant that sea level was very high. So the mar- so so the oceans were uh, were were um, flooding the, the the continents, and there were unique chemical conditions in the oceans that meant that these. Uh, these coccoliths were just sort of prolifically producing all of this, uh, all of this chalk sediment. So you have to, even in the mainstream view, you have to invoke very, very unusual uh, conditions that are really 
not uniformitarian. They're not like the conditions that characterize the movie. Sure. So you end up with... Uh, even even the sort of conventional geologist then has to say, okay, well, we've got a global pattern here and we're going to have to have a global explanation even if it is essentially unprecedented in our in the world that we know. Yeah. Um, like you say, non-uniformitarian. Uniformitarians think that what you see now is what's always been, and so the processes that we see now run off over millions of years will generate what you see in the in the in the geological record. And so you get to something like the Cretaceous with the massive massive chalk layers or the uh, the order of no, no, the Permian with all of its sandstones and you have to say well it looks like a desert so I guess there was a desert everywhere on the land or it looks like you know the oceans must have come up over the land and made these giant relatively pure <laughs> deposits of microorganisms and it has to be global yeah. just like just like our model mm -hmm. pro produces a global, yeah, a global expectation of what the column would be like. Yeah, and and mainstream geologists, you know, have recognised the unusual nature of of this. So, you know, Derek Derek uh, Ager was uh, president of the Geologists' Association here in Britain. He was uh, chair of the geology department at Swansea, uh, and he was what he well he called himself a neo-catastrophist you know he he was certainly not a creationist um uh but he uh saw that there were patterns in in the geological record that were unlike you know patterns that you would expect from the modern world uh he wrote a book called the nature of the stratigraphical record and i think the first chapter in that book is called the persistence of faces which he's really just talking about this this remarkable phenomenon that you have these distinctive rock types these distinctive rock formations that you can recognize you know in europe and in north america and in other parts of the world and uh that's a phenomenon that screams out for an explanation and i think as creationists we have that explanation because we have a we have a global causative event i've got a question regarding the history of of creationism <clears throat> so i have this book right here mm. called the new yep. geology by george mccready price this book was published almost 100 years ago uh 1923 uh, and in this book, Price basically claims that <clears throat> you can find rock layers on sitting on any rock layer you want. That in fact, the idea of the order of the fossil record or that the geologic column is built on eh, wishful thinking. And he would say that the the reality is that yeah you go out in the field and you start looking at rock layers you're going to find any rock layer on top of any other rock layer if you look hard enough 
and so there is no geologic column at all. And so, boom, the whole edifice of evolution and everything else just falls apart because it's all built on this false claim about the column. So you're telling me that the column was built by many different people um, based on observations of rock layers in different parts of the world where they said, all right, well, here's the same, you know, red sandstone and here's the same chalk layers and so forth. So what's Price talking about? Is he right? Is he just making crazy stuff up? Uh, where's he getting this idea and why, why is he making those claims if he's wrong? Yeah. Um, I think we have to recognize that, that George McCready Price was a kind of armchair geologist. He wasn't somebody who did a lot of uh, work actually going out in the field and, you know, w walking across the rock layers and tracing them and uh, that, that kind of thing. Um, he, 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 was, he was reading the literature and he was constructing a case from his literature research, but he, he wasn't a field Right. Uh, now, you know, he had uh, a protege, Harold Clark, who decided to go out into the field and sort of test some of Price's ideas. And Clark discovered that actually Price was wrong, that the, this geological column really did exist. Okay. And you could, you could, you could confirm it out in the field. And they, they basically fell out about that, you know, Price and Clark, you know, had this notorious sort of feud. And that was one of the issues, uh, was about the reality of the column. But I, I think what Price, you know, Price represents this kind of strand within creationism that has been very skeptical, very suspicious of the geological column, because I think they kind of see it as inherently evolutionary in some way. Um, because of this idea of fossil succession and because evolution is often used then as an interpretive framework to explain the fossil succession and also the fact that we have um, these great ages assigned to the rock systems in the, in the geological column. You know, all of that, I think, goes towards making many creationists very suspicious about about the whole idea. But I think we have to recognize that <clears throat> the, as we said earlier, the geological column was put together before Darwin's theory of evolution came along in 1859 by, by people, by geologists who were mostly not evolutionists themselves. So yes, they saw a fossil succession, but they weren't thinking about it in the evolutionary terms at that point. And also it was put together before the discovery of radioactivity at the end of the 19th century and the development of radiometric dating in the 20th century. So I think we can ask the question about whether the column is real independently of some of that evolutionary baggage. You know, is there a real sequence? Can you actually go out and, um, tramp over 
the rocks in the field and find that this sequence consistently holds up. And I think, uh, you know, broadly speaking, you know, most of the creation geologists that, you know, are part of the, the, the kind of community that, that, that we're involved in would say, yes, you, you can, you, you can corroborate um, this geological succession. And in fact, you know, 200 years of field work by thousands of geologists since the time that the column was first put together has effectively corroborated that the column is real. So you mentioned local, um, local uh, exceptions to the column, that mm. any place you go on, in the world is not necessarily going to have the whole column definitely won't have it uh, if it does have a large portion of the column probably doesn't have all of it exposed in one place where you can observe it directly um, is, is I guess I'm, I'm still trying to get into Price's brain here is is that where he's getting this idea is it is just the local variability of the column is that where he's coming up with this idea that there is no geologic column at all uh, or, or is it simply armchair geology well I, th I think it is armchair geology but i think it's also a lack of appreciation of how geologists piece together the the column from local columns which is where we get into um what geologists call correlation so if you if you go to a specific field location, let's say you're looking at a particular sequence of rock layers in a cliff or in a quarry exposure, it's easy to work out the sequence of layers, right? You, you can actually directly observe them. The question is, can you extend those observations right further? Yes. And uh, you know one of one of the things you can you can do in the field is you can simply walk along the outcrop. And you can follow the rock layers and see what happens to them in many cases. And uh, so, so for example, uh, if, if I were to take you down to the south coast of England and we were to go to the counties of uh, Dorset and Devon, you know, we could see some Triassic rock layers and we could literally just follow them along the, the coast and we could see what happens. And we would find that they are then overlain by Jurassic uh, limestones and shales. And then you can find that those Jurassic limestones, as you go further along the coast, those limestones and shales are then succeeded eventually by the Cretaceous sediments and the chalk and so on. So you can begin to piece together um, more of the column simply by walking the outcrop. And in fact, you can then extend those observations even further by developing a column for the whole of a region. So say the whole of Southern England or, or the whole of England by extending those kinds of careful field observations combined with other data, borehole data and thing, things of that kind. Where things get a bit trickier is where you can't establish direct continuity. So for example, right. uh, you know, eventually you're going to meet the English channel and <laughs> then yeah. the, then you're going to be looking at the rocks on the other side of the English Channel in right. France and Germany and so on. And the question then becomes, well, you know, 
if we can't establish direct continuity, how do we know that those rock layers really match up? And what again, this comes back to what I said, that actually you see a lot of similarities in the rocks in France and Germany with the rocks in England that makes, I think, the idea that there was some kind of direct physical connection at some time a very reasonable uh, inference. And in fact, you can, by drilling into the rocks in the English Channel, you can actually get some evidence that helps to confirm that connection. But then you've eventually got the case where, you know, you're, you're talking about regions that are separated by wide bodies of water. You're talking about different continents. Yeah, North America, for example. The Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Um, and there, obviously, it's you can't establish a direct connection so easily. Um, but again, you know, the, those broad-scale patterns that we talked about hold up. The geological column essentially works in North America just as it works here in, in Britain. So I think, you know, these are reasonable inferences that you can make. And I think what um, what often those who are sceptical of the column do is they go and look at the rare exceptions where they see that what, what they perceive to be contradictions to the column. So they find a place where in northern Montana uh, and uh, southern Alberta, where there are Precambrian rocks sitting on top of Cretaceous rocks. And clearly the Cretaceous rocks are, according to the geological column, you know, much younger than the Precambrian rocks. So they're in the wrong order. And so Price and others sometimes point to examples like that and they say, well, look, you know, you've got these rock successions out of, out of sequence. The problem with that argument is that when you go and carefully inspect those um, those examples, you find that there's evidence of gigantic earth movements that have basically displaced older rock formations on top of younger ones. So you find evidence along the contact between the, the rock units, evidence of highly sheared rubble and scratch marks that indicate the direction from which the overriding block came and drag folds. And you begin to realize that actually these rocks are not in the place where they were originally deposited. They've been, they've been moved. Something very dramatic has happened. And those kinds of exceptions are basically, you find those in mountain belts. You find those in, in places where um, there's been enormous faulting and folding of rocks and compression of the Earth's crust. And that's where you find those kinds of rock units out of order, out of sequence. You don't find them in the stable interiors of the continents. So trying to sort of argue that those are genuine exceptions to the geological column is a bit like looking at the scene of a car wreck and saying, well, you know, really the steering wheel of a car is in the, is in the back. It, it you know. could go anywhere. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> Um, because you're looking at a car wreck, okay? But when, when you look at the car pristine in the showroom, um, that's not how the car looks. And so I think what they're, what they're doing is they're looking at those rare exceptions and they're using them as sort of embarrassing exceptions to the, to the geological column, but they're, they're, they're missing the picture that these actually are disturbed sequences. 
Uh, this is not how those rocks were originally all right. Well, this has been fascinating. I'm actually learning a lot. Uh, but I think we need to wrap this episode up um, and record another one. Let's record a part two to this because this is really, yeah, really it's helpful. It's been fun. And there's still lots to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for watching. Uh, be sure to, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, click that like button. Um uh, uh, click the subscribe button. There's a bell that you can click if you want to get notified the minute we put up something new. Very exciting, I'm sure. Uh, let's see. If you're on another platform, feel free to leave us a review. We've gotten a lot of nice comments that way. And we appreciate that. If you have questions, you can send them to podcast at Our home uh, is corsi.org slash podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll check out our ministries as well. Paul, where's where would I find Biblical Creation Trust online? Yeah, it's very simple. Biblicalcreationtrust.org. Wow, that is simple. And Core Academy of Science <laughs> is at coresci.org. That's C-O-R-E-S-C-I.org. All right. Well, thanks for watching and be ready for part two in a fortnight. See you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk Creation. If you have questions, send them to podcast at coresci.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at C-O-R-E-S-C-I dot org. And be sure to let your friends know about Let's Talk Creation. And check us out on social media. Thank you.